0: Number 226, Brother Jeff has asked that we mark that and use that at the appropriate time this morning. As was mentioned by Brother Roger earlier, it is a delightful opportunity that we each have and we're blessed with our membership today as well as some visitors, many visitors who have come our way. We're thankful for each and every one who's present. And it's our hope and our prayer that all will be encouraged and edified in those matters which are the most holy faith. Second Peter 1, verse number 1. In fact, as was one of those announcements mentioned, made of that gospel meeting at the Liberty Congregation in Granville beginning next Lord's Day morning, certainly we are excited about the opportunity to be a part of that gospel endeavor. And we would invite your prayers to be with us during the course of those events and certainly recognize the faithful men who shall be delivering the Bible studies and lessons here and very thankful as always for the men here at Pippin the eagerness, the willingness, the talent that's here, and the opportunity that's often sought to share those talents by way of proclamation of the truth in various ways. This morning for our lesson, you may have noted in the bulletin the title of which is A Matter of Self-Control. And as we give thought to it, we in fact, at least at this moment, will draw to a brief conclusion that series of lessons in which we've been engaged for a bit of time now, about a month, We've looked at a number of cultural issues and matters, those things that, quite frankly, are overwhelmingly endorsed and approved in the world around us, but yet we've learned on these occasions that God's Word has something different to say about them. And in fact, as we've looked at all of them, just the titles of those lessons, at least the major subject involved, you'll recall we looked at modesty and at dancing, at gambling and drinking alcoholic beverages, And all the while as we gave thought to all of them, everything from what one takes in to what one does to one's body, God is very serious about us being godly people in His sight, conducting and behaving ourselves in a way not merely as the world does, but rather to do so with the highest degree and the highest element of godly behavior that's pious, of course, and righteous." It has not been our intent, of course, to simply present our thinking, but rather what the Bible has had to say. But it is entirely fair to say that a series of lessons like this could go on much longer. So many issues surround us, and we each face it, and we know it well. Matters that come before us, honest questions are sometimes asked. Our children oftentimes ask us, what about this? might I invite us to look today at a particular overarching theme, the matter of self-control, and to prompt our discussion using two words found in 2 Peter chapter 1. As we do that near the bottom of that slide, we shall find that our discussion of these points, I think, will be very prompting and will be very penetrating as well. To do that, might I invite us to look at that text yet again. We heard it read just a moment ago, and as we heard that read by Brother Joy, might I invite you to notice again, beginning in verse 3 of Second Peter 1, and let's place it in a larger context, and with that, let's give some thought to the earnestness and fullness of what the inspired apostle had to say. "'According as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue,' "...whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful." in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We'll pause at that point and in fact revisit at least briefly the closing part of verse 4 and the opening part of verse 5. On that occasion, you'll notice that as I quoted that just briefly, the implication was, and beside this, giving all diligence, as if the inspired apostle was changing his point of view That is, other than these other things, or beside these other things, now do this. But really, that's not the thrust of the Greek text, nor is it the thrust of many other renditions of that passage. In fact, would you notice this rendering? And for this very cause, applying all diligence to your faith, add... And isn't it interesting how differently that gives us the impression of the passage? Again, and for this very cause, what cause, Peter? The cause of, in fact, escaping the corruption that's in the world through lust. If it is the case that you and I seek to and desire to escape the sinful corruption that's in this world, all that goes along with it and the terrible features that it brings about, then that which you and I must do in order to bring that about is to add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and knowledge temperance and to temperance patience and to patience godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness charity. In other words, Peter wasn't discussing something different. In the effort and in the desire and in the accomplishment of escaping the old corruptions that's in this world, you and I need to be busy. Busy and in fact diligently so at adding these things to our faith. What are these things, again, that need to be added? In fact, let us look briefly at some of them. Of course, there is that opening mention of faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen, according to Hebrews 11, verse 1. It is that which comes ultimately from the Word of God. For faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Romans 10, verse 17. And thus, as you and I give attention to the book... In fact, diligent attentions as we strive to rightly divide it and make application to our life, that will result in the occurrence and reality of faith. But then isn't it true that to that there must be added virtue? Virtue, that word means moral excellence or moral goodness. And we can immediately appreciate this fact that that very matter thus recalls and demands of us that we appreciate what is morally right and good and excellent, and that furthermore we seek to implant it into our life and in fact to so conduct ourselves in that way. I've tried to write that in these words, not only an appreciation of, but a devotion to that which truly is morally excellent as defined by God. That's the part, of course, where the world often asks us and in fact encourages us to take a different path. The world wishes us to follow what the world approves and not what God calls us morally excellent in so many occasions and ways. You'll notice beyond the matter of virtue, there's knowledge. As we look at the matter of knowledge, what kind of knowledge is this? Our world is so filled with knowledge of many things. The natural world, the matter of the human spirit and its ways, But isn't it amazing, that knowledge that is so lifted and that is so wonderful from the perspective of Scripture is that knowledge of the Son of God, that knowledge of God, that knowledge of matters righteous. Later in verses 8 and 9, wasn't it true that that's what Peter highlighted, the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Wasn't it true also that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge? Proverbs 1-7 If you and I wish thus to be wise, to be knowledgeable, it starts with the knowledge of this book. That's where it must begin, and no wonder we have such an impressive desire to teach our youngsters in Bible classes and otherwise so that they are reared in a way that they first begin here. All the other kinds of knowledge, be it science or mathematics, be it the knowledge of politics or otherwise, all of that perhaps has its place. But unless it is undergirded with the knowledge of Scripture, that knowledge can lead one astray. It can lead one to pathways that really involve evil. And often it can lead to confusion in life that causes more problems than good. Is it any wonder then knowledge is vital? But knowledge mustn't be that which closes the list. For Peter goes on to make this statement. There's temperance. And we shall have more to say about that one in a moment. But... It involves mastery. In fact, the Greek word means mastery, to have control of oneself, to have one's propensities and desires and actions in such control that one is in control and not others. You and I, in fact, live dangerously when we allow others to control us and our behavior in light of things that are said and thought and done. And then there's patience. That word patience means endurance or perseverance. In light of the difficulties surrounding those to whom Peter wrote, their lives were often hard and difficult because of the persecutions that had come their way and because of the difficulties that had surrounded their path. And might we be quick to say that as those of our day and time, we too must have a mindset of perseverance not one of throwing up our hands in disgust, disappointment, failure, and quitting, but rather one who is understanding of the fact that this kind of opposition shall arise and that we simply need to be persevering. Here are several passages. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, "...be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, forasmuch as ye you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord." What a delightful passage to hear Paul utter that to the Corinthians. A congregation beset with a number of troubling problems, a number of difficult mindsets, and yet he encouraged them. Be steadfast and unmovable in regard to that which is the revelation and work of God. But even beyond the issue of patience, there is godliness, which simply means wholesome, godly demeanor. Living as God has identified. Haven't you and I seen some interesting questions about that in regard to our series of studies? What the world thinks about drinking alcoholic beverages? What the world perceives about gambling? What the world so often teaches about tattoos and body piercings? And yet we're admonished to live in a way that our life is an open pattern of godliness to those who observe us, are acquainted with us, and who are around us. If that's not able to be said of your life and mine, then we need to self-examine ourselves and make the appropriate changes at once. Otherwise, we recognize we shall in fact be found lacking and wanting before the eyes of our Heavenly Father. Wasn't it true that Paul wrote to Timothy and said, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world? Even beyond that matter of godliness, there's, of course, both brotherly kindness and also love. That brotherly kindness is a love of the brethren, in which brothers and sisters in Christ have not only concern for, but love for one another, desirous of their welfare, desirous of seeing that which is good for them. Jesus did say, didn't He, in John fifteen twelve, that love one another as I have loved you. And, of course, that last one, that issue of love, is so highly defined in 1 Corinthians 13. I would submit that as we've looked briefly at each of them, might we revisit two of them and cast a deeper spotlight upon them. And those two are virtue and the matter of temperance, or to say that differently, moral excellence and the matter, of course, of self-control. As you give thought to each of them, might I ask us to think of how often the world teaches a lesson that is opposed to both of them. And it does so in light of the following prescription. I begin it in the following way. You and I live in a time and in an age, and we know this well. But a reminder is such an appropriate thing, at least at this point in the lesson. So often, isn't it true that the rights of the individual are lifted to the absolute pinnacle and zenith of consideration... It's my right to have this. It's my right to do that. And no person, nobody has any realistic right to question me about it because it's my right. As you can see upon that slide before us, some will say, but it's my right to be happy. God wants me to be happy, doesn't He? It's my right to feel at ease and in a state of no stress and tension. And God would want me to do that, right? And hence, a certain set of actions are pursued, which supposedly, because God gives supposedly that opportunity, that they want to pursue it. As you look at some of the other things upon that slide... Some are quick to say, but I'm young and God has given me the energy and the propensities and the desires of the flesh. It's my right to experiment and to test. That's the only way I'm going to learn the truth, isn't it? And so they justify certain behaviors and actions in light of it's my right. We can see where this leads, don't we? We can easily appreciate that basing all of it on the personal, selfish stance of myself really allows almost everything, doesn't it? In our present society, many will in fact argue, at least in a parallel fashion to this, consider abortion for a moment. That baby, some call it a fetus, but that living human being in the womb of that mother, and yet some would say, it's her body, it's her right then to do as she so pleases, to not only her body, which would also include that which is within within her, And thus, they openly endorse this matter of murder. And they do so because it's her right. That person who has worked so difficultly and perhaps the day at work has not been good. And we all know well what that can be like. And so I'll stop on the way home and I need to ease this tension in my life. I've had it up to here and I need a drink or two. Wouldn't God want me to be at ease? Would He not want me to be comforted? Surely He would. And so they justify having a few beers on the way home. You see, as we face all these issues that we have over the last several weeks, at least on many occasions, much of it goes back to an argument that it's my right. It's my body, can I put tattoos on it if I want? It's my body, can't I punch as many holes in it where and whenever I please? The issue that we must always go back to in all of that is that many cases, that which is providing it and that which is encouraging it and the pressure that brings it is from the society and those whom you and I know. Let's revisit this matter of both virtue and self-control over the next few moments this morning. As you can see there near the bottom, one could take these discussions in light of many other ways, be they modesty or otherwise. Our point of view, however, shall be this one. Let's go back to virtue for just a moment. Virtue again from that passage implies and demands the appreciation of that which truly is morally excellent and that which is morally good and that which is upstanding and positive in the right of the revelation of God. And we might note that there is an absolute standard to that. And here is that dividing line where the world, of course, takes a different path. Those who argue it's my right, of course, fail to appreciate an absolute standard. And thus, it is not one's right to go against the absoluteness of that standard. In 1 Corinthians 4 verse 6, Paul, in writing to that same troubled church that we mentioned earlier, he expressly said to them, "...not to go beyond that which is written." In other words, in whatever matter they were to behave, in whatever conduct they were to select, whatever wordings or actions or language or thoughts, never to proceed beyond that which the Holy Spirit had seen fit to reveal. Might I suggest, of course, by inspiration, that's the same truth that's so needful to you and me today. Do not go beyond that which is written, and thus any action, be it encouraged directly or indirectly, that thus goes against the character of God's revelation. Be it in the treatment of the body, the thoughts of the mind, the character of one's disposition, it should in fact thus not be pursued if it is found to be that which is beyond what is written. In 2 John, beginning in verse 9, one chapter book near the close of the New Testament, John there in writing said, "...whosoever transgresseth and goeth onward," that is to say, going beyond the doctrine of Christ, that one he wrote has not God. In other words, if one then proceeds beyond that which is the revelation of the Christ, if one proceeds to go beyond that which is corresponding to the truth and doctrine of Jesus, then that person, John said, is transgressing, guilty of sin, going beyond that character of the right and thus finds oneself in a position of having neither Christ nor God. At this point, might we thus powerfully conclude, no one surely in his or her right mind would desire to be in that state. That is to say, to be in a state of having neither any element of the, God, of the Godhead. I say all that to say this. There are so many around us in the world who openly... Have little interest in or respect for the absolute standard that you and I have just discussed. And as such, they base their actions on something else, like their feelings or what dad and mom have allowed them to do in days gone by. And as such, they approach matters and encourage others to do the same. Peer pressure, be we who are a bit older or those who are younger, is something that, quite frankly, we face often. And Satan, of course, ever wishes it that way to, in fact, put us in the vice of pressure so that we will crack and so that we will forego the matter of virtue and rather quickly do that which later we shall regret. Give some thought to perhaps a number of these situations that I've listed so briefly at the bottom. Our youngsters, of course, know peer pressure well. And we who are parents also feel for them in light of what they share with us. But those youngsters, perhaps their acquaintances at school who are doing something they ought not be doing, be it smoking something, engaging in some kind of sexual contact, or perhaps just being mischievous, defacing walls, insulting teachers or otherwise. And they, of course, in the heat of that moment, will encourage another youngster to do the same. Don't be a mama's boy. Take a little puff. Do this with your girlfriend. Let's make fun of the teacher and the principal too. No one will ever find out. Have a few drags on this cigarette. It will make you a man, you know. And at once one faces a monumental decision, quite frankly. Does one hold to the character of virtue knowing what one has been taught, appreciating the nature of the matter of virtue as set forth in the Word of God, And of course, along that same decision, to offend those who've made the offer and perhaps be ridiculed as a result thereof. Or does one, of course, giving, do what they are encouraging to do, but then feel guilty? And almost certainly it will be discovered. That's one of Satan's oldest tricks, isn't it? No one will ever find out. But someone's always watching, and if not, God always is, of course. And isn't it so easy at that moment to be faced, one's pulse rate increases as you face that decision? Maybe we can each remember, even if we're older, having had to face it at one time or another. What about athletes? They face the same kind of decision. Someone else is cheating. We all know what has happened to cycling and Major League Baseball is one after another, they've all taken drugs to enhance their performance in the sport. Everyone else is doing it, why not you? Can't you use that to get a competitive advantage and a competitive edge? Or even on the court, others are playing mean and ugly. Why not me? The referees seemingly didn't call it on them. You see, the world is filled with decisions along this line. Do we demean ourselves and act like them, those who are following the masterhood of Satan, or do we in virtue hold to that which is morally excellent and that which is morally good, knowing that our Heavenly Father is watching? and that he, of course, will approve that which is morally excellent. What about you and I who are adults? Aren't we called on, too, to make the similar kind of decisions? Maybe as we interact with our spouses, in the heat of a moment, we say something we wish we hadn't. We, in fact, do something that later we sorely regret. And yet, all the while, as we do that, we know again that there was a moment of decision. Perhaps we didn't pursue the matter of self-control. You see, virtue is a very laudable characteristic, isn't it? And quite frankly, it's a word our world doesn't use much anymore. If you turn back the clock some 200 years and look at some of the writings of individuals back then, you find the usage of the word virtue over and over again because it was important. And today, it just simply apparently for many is not. Virtue is long lost. After all, there was that virtuous woman of Proverbs 31. How high and lovely is her description? And we notice also the matter of virtue as it's supposedly seen in a person's sexual character. But again, in our day, that's often lost, isn't it? And it's a shame. For it's such a special word, isn't it? As you look at the bottom, whether we've looked at all these particular examples, let's revisit virtue and self-control and to do so in the following way. It's important, even in the light of those difficult moments, when we're faced with these hard decisions and others encouraging and endorsing us to do something, take a moment to think clearly. Take a moment and not allow oneself to be rushed into something. Quite often, each of us find ourselves, it's hard to think clearly if we're rushed. Those people who are being so incessant and who are being so hurriedly wanting you to do what they're doing, they just want somebody else to be their partner in mischief, and their partner in that which is evil. Even Paul understood how important it was to be self-controlled. In 1 Corinthians 9 verse 27, he said, Lest he himself should become a castaway, that he himself buffeted his own body. Here was an apostle who found it needful to always be in control and to analyze carefully the things which he faced. And may you and I in wisdom, of course, do the same. Buffeting our body, notice, control yourself. Just because someone else is getting a tattoo doesn't mean you have to. Just because someone else stops off for a beer doesn't mean I have to. And just because someone else speaks in some way to, say, their parents doesn't mean you have to speak disrespectfully that way. We are given the opportunity, you see, to control ourselves in the matter of virtue. Consider just a few of these passages in Ephesians 4:29. We read, "Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Isn't it true that one of the first things that's ready and in full gear is our mouth? When perhaps someone challenges us or charges us in a particular way, we often will go on the defensive and do so in a language that's hurtful. We might say something that in fact is not the appropriate thing to say at that moment in time. Maybe just a few moments of calmness would have been far better. In Colossians 4, 6, our speech ought to be seasoned with salt, if you will, never to be filled with grace. In James 3, isn't the tongue described in such a remarkable way the difficulty of taming it, but yet the ever-present need to try so that in fact we would always have language such that it's not that fountain that's filled with bitter water, but it's that fountain of good water, sweet water, water that is the right thing at the right time. Isn't it true that Moses spoke inadvisedly? according to Psalm 106, verse 33. Here was a man, now remember, who had ascended Mount Sinai, who had been in the very presence of God, a man who had been the leader of Israel for yet so long, who was the meekest man on the earth, according to Numbers, chapters 11 and 12. But yet we find that on that occasion, when God had given him instruction, the text said that again he spoke inadvisedly. He said what he ought not have said, and for that he was barred from the promised land. He was never allowed to enter it, though he was blessed to see it. Might I ask us, what about speaking inadvisedly? Do we say some things that we wish we would not have? It does bring us back to the issue of self-control, doesn't it? And it's hard. Maybe that's one of the most difficult things that we in this human flesh Are asked to overcome, is to ever be in control of our thinking, in control of our language, and certainly in control of our action. Naaman was another example, wasn't he? In the fifth chapter of 2 Kings, here was again a noble man, one who, however, was inflicted with leprosy, and yet, when the opportunity was presented him, he came to this place in which Elisha the prophet was found, And the things did not proceed as Naaman thought they should. So he elevated his thinking above the rightness of the cure as the prophet had directed it. Whereas the command was to go and wash seven times in the Jordan River, he thought surely something more grandiose than that would be directed. And something far greater and higher that might be more worthy of his station might be commanded. And yet it wasn't. In a rage, the text says, he proceeded away. He was unwilling to stoop to the point of dipping in the Jordan River. And yet, thankfully, his servants urged him, if some great thing had been asked of you, would you not have done it? Might we notice that in his haste and in the urgency of the moment, he was going to forfeit the matter of cleansing. Today, might you and I be ever wiser in our approach than that and to strive to control ourselves. Again, it is not easy on many occasions. It calls on us to be very much of an examining spirit to, of course, have furthermore the thought in mind, what is wrong and what is right? And if this matter that is being urged to me is wrong, no further consideration is needed. We, in fact, need to remove ourselves from the position to remain virtuous. The longer we linger near the evil, the higher our... Satan will ratchet the pressure. The higher that he will ratchet the intensity, and the more likely it is that we shall give in. No doubt many a young person has started out with a full intent to remain virtuous, and yet as the night lingered on and one remained in the station where the evil was, the mindset to resist weakened, and finally one gave in. You and I perhaps have seen it many occasions and friends that we've known. Those who once were God-fearing young men and women and who in the course of time have now wandered far, far away. Living in the distant land where the pigs you see are, and just like the prodigal son, they need to come home, but will they ever come to themselves? Maybe only God knows. Self-control is an important thing, isn't it? And yet, Peter here urges it upon us, you make sure to add to your faith temperance, which really is self-control. Do you and I allow our temper to lead us where it really is not good? We should work on that. We should strive to be in control of ourselves, and here are some passages that urge us toward that end. We might well start in Proverbs fourteen twenty-nine, as well as Proverbs nineteen two, both of which urge us not. To be hasty. When someone approaches us and want a decision at once, it's best to say, if nothing else, let me think on it for a few moments at least. For those that are hasty find themselves often in the place of wickedness. We need to think clearly. And furthermore, we notice in James 1, verses 19 and 20: Let every man be swift to hear and slow to speak, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. We thus need to appreciate the need to ever have open ears. What really is being described? Are they trying to soft-soap it and cover it over? And yet, ultimately, there's evil at work and there's mischief at hand. It is an amazing thing to consider that the difficulty associated with practical virtuosity and practical self-control ever challenges us as individuals to grow And this is one thing that can be a very good measuring stick of our growth. Are we now better able to resist and overcome these issues using self-control than we were perhaps years in the past? If not, we need to work on this because Satan will continue to use this tool, for it is such an effective one, isn't it? Causing individuals to wander away from what their parents have taught them that's righteous and good, because they find themselves away from dad and mom and then. I can do what I want, for it's my right. And in that sense, we've come full circle. There is this absolute standard that is set before us, and if we wish to, in fact, enter those beautiful places, those pearly gates of heaven, then we need to be self-controlled. And we need to, in fact, be a person of virtue, approving what's morally excellent and remaining aloof from that which is not. This very morning in looking at all of these things, might I submit that in Ephesians 4.1, you and I are called upon to pursue the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And it is a high calling. God doesn't accept the trash. He wants the best and He'll take nothing less. He wants your life and mine then to be the highest standard of virtuosity, the highest standard of purity and godliness, and isn't it true that blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God? Matthew 5.8 Today, as you examine your life and as I examine mine, is it one characteristic of virtue? Is it one characteristic of self-control? Have we, of course, remained aloof from all these things we've discussed, such as gambling, drinking, and otherwise? But what about all those other things the world encourages? These two are very important matters, aren't they? And with them, let's close our lesson by noting very simply again these two definitions. Virtue, that which is morally excellent, that which is morally good. We know our world has very little interest in what's morally good and morally excellent because every man wants to do that which is right in his own eyes. And that, my friend, is evil. And it'll always be that which is encouraging what Satan enjoys. But yet, when you and I know the virtue of God's Word the testimony of the absolute standard, and we have the control to follow it. Even when the world says that we're a fool for doing so, we know, nonetheless know that God says, because He sees even what's done in secret and He will reward us openly. Matthew 6 verses 1 through 7. This very morning, in the analysis of your life, might we begin with this question, Are you a Christian? If you do not have the Savior who has washed your sins away and are able to walk hand in hand with Him day by day, then there is a tremendous source of power you do not have. And you can't defeat Satan on your own. He is the strong man, Mark three twenty seven, And one, in fact, needs all the power of the Master who has entered his house and spoiled his goods. Jesus has done that. Have you made use of Him in your life by, in fact, being a faithful servant of His? If you have not been today, why not become a Christian this very morning? Everything's prepared and ready. We could assist you in what will be a life-changing moment for you. If you've never become that Christian, realize the Lord demands that you believe Him to be the Son of God who He said He was. Repent of the sins in your life. Confess His name as a Son of God and be baptized for the remission of sins. If you have engaged in that and have known the power and beauty of it, but you've strayed away, perhaps allowing the world to dictate your sense of virtue, we need to be reminded the world does not present virtue. God does. And if you need to revisit and have your standards redone so that they follow that of Jesus, why not do that today? If your sins have been of a public character and you wish others to know of your repentance and ask for their prayers, why not do it this morning? We pray for you. We pray with you. If we could be of assistance in either of these ways, why not even this morning? Why not even now as together we stand in what we sing?